Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, and that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast, and we really appreciate the support we get through our Patreon account, which is patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast. If you can chip in any amount of money, um, even for a couple of months, you don't have to contributing for the rest of your life, but we will keep making this podcast for as long as we possibly can. And we're building up quite a back collection of episodes now. So if this is the first episode you're listening to, then um, make sure you check out all of our other episodes um, that we have on your favorite podcast platform. Um, We talk about politics, we talk about history, theory, and activism, and we try to really talk about those things all as part of one conversation. And today's discussion, I think, will be another demonstration of that. Um, We are marking 20 years since a protest that was called S11, a blockade that happened in September 2000 with two guests who were there. Um, You won't believe it because they seem so young (laughs) and vibrant. (laughs) James Vigas and James Plested. This is going to be interesting when I say James, but I'm going to say JP for James Plested and James for Vigas, um, who are both socialists still and were in 2000 and were active um, before, during and after the blockade. And JP just wrote about this in Red Flag. The link to his in-depth article is in the notes for this episode. And I just wanted to um, open with the description that he writes in that article um, to just give a sense of it. And there are some video clips on YouTube and stuff that you can watch if you um, weren't around in 2000 or don't really know what we're talking about with the blockade of S11. But just to give a sort of um, picture of it in words, tens of thousands of protesters, literally tens of thousands it was, face down police violence to blockade a meeting of some of the world's wealthiest people. For many participants, it was a life-changing experience. And actually, given the 20-year anniversary um, that we're in this month, there's been quite a bit of discussion about it. And actually, in in all of my um, social media feeds and stuff like that, there's a bunch of people who are now in various (laughs) positions and uh, doing different things around the left. But S11 did seem to be one of those moments that people felt like there was the possibility and potentially the power that people might have to change the world. So that made it feel like a a life-changing experience and it was, I think, for some people a real confirmation of of politics. So um, James Vigas, how was it life-changing for you? Like what were you doing in the run-up to this blockade? What was kind of happening politically um, how did this fit with uh, your experience at the time? How old were you actually in 2000? It was an absolutely amazing time to be a 19-year-old undergrad student at Monash Uni. Um, the events of Seattle in late 1999 inspired us to try to have this task of saying, well, the rich and powerful are coming to Melbourne and we're going to go all out to shut down their massive forum in our city and we campaigned so hard for the whole year and as a student activist the entire student world university world and the entire melbourne left indeed right across the country we spent months arguing debating having all night um organizing discussions with various people to try and figure out what we're going to do but ultimately the fact that 20,000 people turned up, and for people not familiar, to shut down and blockade the entire Crown Casino precinct in Melbourne was just a stunning success. It was an amazing day that everyone looked forward to, hoped for, and it actually happened. So it was an incredible experience. Yeah, which is not always the case with them. 
with trying to organize stuff on the left, you sort of can have big visions, but for it to actually be pulled off like it was at S11 is pretty incredible. Um, so, JP, in the lead up to the S11 blockade, like what were the arguments that people were making about the World Economic Forum and who were all these people coming to Melbourne and what, like, what was the rationale for shutting it down? <clears throat> well, the World Economic Forum, it, it was then and it remains to this day, one of the major institutions of the global capitalist elite. Um, it's actually an NGO, but that shouldn't have any of the kind of connotations that you ordinarily associate with that. Um, it's mainly known for its annual summit in the luxury resort of Davos in Switzerland. Um, it describes itself as engaging the foremost political, business, cultural and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. Um, at the time of the S11 protests, it had around 260 member organisations, and this included uh, most of the kind of major corporations in the world and some of the richest and most powerful individuals in the world. So it's basically just a club for the super rich and the super powerful where they, they got together behind closed doors and talk about um, how they can kind of better run the world uh, in their interests. And the, the S11 protests in Melbourne sort of formed part of um, what at the time was called the anti-capitalist movement. And that went back um, actually beyond the Seattle protests that um, James Vigas mentioned, which was in November 1999 against the World Trade Organization. And it went back really to the, to the early 90s when the US kind of wanted to take the opportunity of the collapse of the Soviet Union to really cement its hegemony globally. Um, and it did that by really aggressively pushing trade liberalization that would benefit um, US corporations at the expense of the rest of the world and really entrench inequality between you know, developed countries and developing countries. And so from the mid-90s onwards, um, summits of the major institutions um, like uh, you know, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization and the World Economic Forum would regularly be targeted. Um, and yeah, that really took off in 1999 in Seattle, which was the big kind of inspiration for S11. But basically, the, the rationale for it was that there's all these problems in the world. There's massive inequality. There's environmental destruction. Um, corporations basically running rampant um, over workplace rights and so on. And we want we want to put an end to that. And we had a gathering of people coming to Melbourne who are very powerful and very rich, and we're trying to advance their agenda to kind of entrench all of those things. And we wanted to say that we, you know that enough's enough. We're going to stand up against this and and fight back. It was basically a meeting of um, capitalists and people who s support them. And I, I remember at the time that kind of turn of the century period. Uh, that everyone really wanted to describe themselves as an anti-capitalist, and that the sort of there was a bunch of debates around what should the strategy and tactics of the anti-capitalist movement be, and um, you know, people had heaps of different ideas about that. So, how did this thing about blockading the event? Because you know, you could have just marched past it. You could have, um, you know, uh, had all sorts of different things happen. So. Were there debates about this, Vargas? Like, do you remember you said there was an all all night organising meetings? What were some of the differences in people's approaches to this cavalcade of scumbags coming to Crown Casino? I think the question of blockading was extremely important. Uh, the fact that the WTO meeting had ended in disaster from the point of view of the capitalist class because of the blockading had inspired a lot of people in Melbourne and Australia to say, we can do the same thing here, that these people aren't legitimate. Their, their agenda is causing so many issues across the world. And here's an opportunity for people in Melbourne and Australia, regardless of sort of the issues that people are really concerned by, to try and come together, even if it's to organise in blocks, but to actually do as much as we can to just shut the meeting down. Now. In Melbourne, there was actually a history predating um, the momentous events of September 11. There had been uh, large demonstrations that shut down Pauline Hanson uh, meetings uh, in Melbourne, and I'd been involved in them as a high school activist. 
the Jabaluka campaign was about blockading and shutting down North Limited in Melbourne, and that was a key point. So it wasn't something completely new um, in Melbourne, that question. But then the question of sort of nonviolence, uh, the question of uh, tactics uh, did, you know, come through. There were some people that said we should, uh, rather than just trying to shut down the forum, we should try and have our own alternative forum. But I think the key argument was that it was actually getting people there together and just to, to assert that these people do not have the right to be able to meet in our city and continue on with their agenda. And I must say that on the day, it was helped because they'd used the Grand Prix barricades to kind of barricade around Crown Casino and that assisted in the thousands of people turning up saying, well, look at what these people were doing um, and what's happening. Let's actually try and uh, shut this uh, forum down um, and use the space around the forum to have those kind of discussions around what kind of world is possible, what can we actually do. So I think that despite the questions of kind of how far do you go to assert that these people are not legitimate, the meeting's not legitimate, on the day of September 11, it was really clear that we could and we should actually shut the thing down, and we actually did. Yeah, and those, I mean, like you said, on on the day people were still debating, as I understand, and beforehand, I mean, the role of students was really important in this. Uh, you were at Melbourne University, JP. Can you talk a bit about what happened on, what was happening on campuses in the run-up to this, the kind of debates yeah, that took yeah. place there as well, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's sort of quite a different context to today. I think people on university campuses today are not really used to the same culture of activism that existed, um, particularly on the major campuses back then. There were quite big left milieus um, within environmental collectives and, you know, the queer spaces and uh, feminist collectives um, and, you know, all of those kind of things that involved, like at Melbourne University, would have been hundreds of people um, involved in those kind of things, which unfortunately is not really the case today. Um, it sort of hasn't survived the subsequent 20 years, although we've tried our best to, you know, maintain it. Um, at the University of Melbourne, like the political atmosphere was very uh, intense in the months leading up to the protest. Um, the, the student union there was actually divided quite sharply between the left, um, which kind of comprised the kind of groups we talked about, I talked about just before, also like um, socialist organisations like Socialist Alternative. Um, and then the right-wing Labor students who are in a faction called Yet Labor Unity. Um, and they are basically involved in the union just to kind of get a nice thing on their resume to build their career in the bureaucracy, um, you know, in the trade unions and the Labor Party apparatus. And the Labor students controlled the finances of the union and they banned money for, from the union from being used for the purposes of anything to do with S11, basically. So for, from their perspective, I mean, it's the same today, like beer and barbecues, that's what they spend their money on. But, you know, if you want to stand up against injustice or have a protest, then they want to stop you from doing that. So instead of just kind of taking this lying down, um, the left organized a student general meeting to happen, um, which I think was held in August. And this actually attracted 300 uh, people and um, we voted unanimously to um, condemn the union leadership and then kind of marched on their offices um, and like we didn't do anything very threatening at all you know it's just a march and a bit of chanting and so on but the next day this event was actually reported in the Herald Sun in Melbourne um, with the headline student union head flees protest anger um, which is just sort of a little indication as well how easy it was to get media um, in advance of S11 because all of the media was kind of just in a complete hysterics about the fact that the scenes from Seattle might be repeated in Melbourne. And, and obviously they're saying, you know, we don't want this unruly mob, but secretly kind of they did because it sells newspapers. And basically anything we did in the lead up, it would get media like that. Um, and yeah, like this kind of little episode, I think is an important thing that really helped to kind of build momentum towards the blockade. And like, as anyone who's tried to build student activism in the last 20 years or no, getting 300 people along to a student general meeting is no small feat. And 
this really generated a real buzz around the, the protest on campus, um, which then obviously fed into the, the, the big turnout that we had. The organising to S11 just had such a huge impact on the student political world on the university campuses and also amongst um, LGBTI circles. Um, the National Labor Students, the left faction, split during the year to the left. Entire student unions that were controlled by left-wing students uh, forcefully um, pushed in a confrontational way to turn over resources entirely to get convoys of students organised from Brisbane, for example, to come into Melbourne. So it was a huge issue um, that Plested talks about. It was bigger 20 years ago. Um, but that played a really important role. Um, it, it really had a profound impact um, amongst a, a number of students on campuses right across the country. And in terms of in amongst young LGBTI people, and I was 19, I was gay, I was in those circles. One of the big issues at the time was, well, capitalism's trying to make it seem like there is this pink economy, there is a pink dollar, that there's a, there's, you can be part of the system. And there was a fierce radicalisation that happened amongst LGBTI people around S11 and identifying S11 as something to organise around. And I think that that was a really important space for us, for people to debate and to argue. And out of that process, a lot of people did were one to, um, you know, revolutionary socialist politics um, from those kind of areas. Um, so that was a really important component leading up to S11. It was a very fierce atmosphere right across the country. If you were involved in a student association, S11 became a key point whether that was in Perth, Brisbane, or indeed in Melbourne. And Vigus, you um, were doing some work to try to get school students, like high school students, to come along. And what, what um, in terms of the media, because if you look at JP's article, he's done some great um, collation of front page headlines and all this kind of stuff. There was a lot of whipping up of fear and telling people to stay away. How mm. did the high school students respond to all of that? Were they worried their parents? would ban them from going or what was the atmosphere like before? Uh, it was the opposite, Roz. Um, like the headlines were so satirically sort of over the top that it helped just mobilise more and more people because it taps into a rebellious nature of youth. Yeah. Um, and it was actually quite popular. Here's all these really rich people that are causing third world poverty, environmental destruction, um, a whole range of things, and here's the Herald Sun sort of treating you like you're a five-year-old. So it actually really helped, like, yeah, radicals luring kids meant that on the day of S11, there was actually just a haze of high school uniforms um, that made up the event on the day, and we have to thank the media for that. We didn't have the capability. Resistance was quite a big organisation back then that had a base in high schools. I'd been a high school activist a couple of years earlier, so it had, we'd actually gone onto campuses to leaflet um, and to organise as much as we could. But the media played a really important role and that was actually an important debate because some sections of the movement thought, oh, my God, the media, negative media publicity equals a negative impact, where we argued, well, actually, a lot of people can see what the media is saying and go, great, we now know the details about the protest, can see through what the Herald Sun stands for, and now are in contact with or organising themselves to get along to the day. So I'm really thankful for that media role in the lead-up. I think that they did exactly what we couldn't do, which was reach out to thousands and thousands of high school students and others to actually let them know about what was coming to Melbourne on September 11 and why you should be there. Yeah, thanks to the Murdoch um, Empire, if you're listening for that. Continue to uh, discourage people to come to uh, left-wing radical protests. That would be great. Um, details every time. Our across the world. So let's get to the actual morning itself. Um, JP, can you 
sort of paint a picture for people? I mean, I know myself on days when it's going to be a big demo or something, you wake up kind of nervous, who's going to come along? How is this going to go? What are the police going to be like? What was it like on that morning when you were making your way into the city for this blockade? Yeah, well, I mean, to start with, it started really, really early. So, I mean, I probably got out of bed at like 5am or something, which is very early for an art student. Um, And yeah, began to like, actually, it was so early that the trams weren't running. So I had to walk from my share house in Fitzroy um, down to Crown Casino. And as James uh, said before, the police in the days leading up to S11 had turned the area of the casino into a kind of fortress. They put up this three meter high um, concrete and steel security barrier around it. There were 2000 police um, that had been mobilized. They had 5000 police on standby. Um, And so it was very, very tense in the days immediately leading up to it. Um, Yeah, and so we we sort of got there around 6 a.m. And Melbourne's weather actually like really put on a show for us. like when we were walking down there, I remember it was quite uh, warm and, you know, very, very windy. And then just uh, when we got down there, like this really, really strong cold front came through and like I'm literally talking like, you know, torrential sideways rain. Um, and it was just when Social Alternative, we had a, a red contingent, red block, um, which I think is the first time we, we did that. And it's just to kind of gather people together in a bit of a militant um, group. And uh, we'd spent like a lot of the pre- preceding kind of days um, really working to make, make ourselves stand out a bit. We painted this, the then SA logo um, onto uh, our flags. Um, but, yeah, um, sorry, I just got a message about something wrong with the server, but it seems to be going all right. Um, yeah, we, we, we painted our logo on the flags and we went out in the road and immediately the rain just saturated that and... Um, our flags, like the paint just started running running down. Um, but lo- like although we were soaked, we kind of weren't deterred and we marched out and um, we actually just started kind of blocking some of the main arterial roads that um, kind of went uh, into the vicinity of the casino, basically to try and choke up the traffic to kind of prevent, um, to, to uh, make it a problem for them to be able to get delegates in. Um, so we blocked King's Way for a while um, and then marched around to um, the other side of the casino on Clarendon Street. And I think this was probably around 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. And this is when I really it really hit me like how big it was. Um, there were just thousands of people as far as you could see around the casino. Um, and, yeah, like anywhere between 10 and 20,000 people participating in the blockade and it was just this like really really exhilarating moment just after all of the kind of build up after all of the sort of hoping that we'd get this turnout to see that is just one of the kind of great moments that I've had as an activist. Vigus do you remember feeling those same things? It was an incredible day I remember uh Remember the John Farnham song, Blurting Out on Loudspeakers, You're the Voice. Um, I remember talking to friends, not just in the social alternative block, but um, in the in the Labor students block, the people that split, um, the queer block. We got a real sense that we've done it. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people have actually answered the call at, of the year of organising and had turned up and were determined to shut this thing down. And it was an incredible feeling to be part of that. And then during the day to see the high school students coming in in huge numbers, I was like, oh, my God, the revolution has turned up and has arrived in Melbourne. Um, But the real moment, I suppose, that stands out for me was being part of that huge blockade. And, again, for people not familiar with Melbourne, Crown Casino is a huge complex. Um, I don't think many of us thought that we could actually shut the whole thing and surround it. Was actually, there was a lot of us standing around and then there was this white car that approached and it came in quite slowly, but it kept driving in and people were like, what's going on? Like, they're not stopping. They're driving through. Who would try and do this? 
And then we realised, we looked in the window and it was, the car was surrounded by this stage and couldn't move. And it was Richard Court, the notorious Western Australian Premier, known as being like the Jeff Kennett of WA. And also for being an extreme racist, as you would expect if you're the Premier of, of WA, founded on Aboriginal stolen land and, and so forth. And we were stunned. And then people started chanting against him. And then this Aboriginal person jumped onto the roof and said, this is what you've been doing to my people. How does it feel? And then it quickly spread around that actually this is an Aboriginal activist, Ivan Wyatt um, Ring. So there'd been enough people around us to realise because there were so many people in the blockades from various campaigns that didn't take long for information to filter through who particular people were from particular states and who they were. And that was an inspiring moment um, to be part of. It was the sheer power of being on that blockade and we have not just shut down this uh, meeting of the rich and powerful, but one of the most notorious political leaders is stuck in his car, surrounded by hundreds of people with an Indigenous man having a piece of power for a couple of minutes. I'll remember that forever. And I hope one day that's a permanent state of affairs. Yeah, on a bigger scale. So they're not just one person stuck in a car, but the whole lot of them. Yeah, I mean, it it does sound like an incredible moment. Um, So this all went on for hours, right? And I think the people who were supposed to be trying to get into the conference um, were probably as surprised as the activists were that this, you know, was a genuine blockade. Like they really couldn't get in there to start their conversations about how to, you know, mine Africa for more resources or exploit people wherever. Um, And so the next day in the media, I think there was a lot of kind of um, surprise tone in the reporting. And I wanted to read um, a quote that you use in your article, JP, from someone, um, John Hilsenrath, who was writing in the Wall Street Journal. Obviously, um, the American media are interested in what happens with the World Economic Forum and uh, in the wake of the Seattle protests. So this is the 12th of September and he's uh, probably a journalist who's embedded actually who's come to cover the World Economic Forum. And so he says, he wrote, um, about halfway through a gruelling three-and-a-half-hour bus trip, Nestle SA executive Dave Parker started getting stir-crazy I feel like a goldfish in here, he muttered to the 40 or so international businessmen travelling with him. No wonder the trip was supposed to take more like three and a half minutes. They've been in this bus for three and a half hours because of the blockade. Mr Parker, visiting from South Korea, was simply trying to take a shuttle bus from the Sheraton Towers Hotel to Crown Towers Hotel, 300 metres, to attend a session on the challenges of the global economy. Instead, he met one of the challenges face-to-face in the form of thousands of protesters rallying against globalization. And you can, there's all these other stories, and JP, maybe you can say a bit more about it, but like, you know, they started trying to get on boats on the Yarra to try to get people into some of the um, back entrances of Crown. People were talking about underground tunnels, helicopters, all of this kind of thing. And you must have been out the front there thinking, yeah, this is actually working. I mean, can you describe some of that sense during the day? Yeah, it was it was very clear that by sort of mid-morning really that um, the blockade was very effective um, and that the police had really lost control of the situation, that the venue was surrounded by so many thousands of people that at every entrance point there were just too many people for the police to be able to deal with. And so... Um, there'd be clashes sort of here and there as the police, you know, tried to kind of um, gain their entrance or, you know, clear a space for delegates' buses to enter. But every time they pushed away, you know, some group of people and, you know, rode their horses in or whatever, hundreds more people would run in and take their place. Um, And, yeah, as you said, that they resorted at one point to 
trying to ferry people uh, across the Yarra River to gain entrance. I know the Prime Minister of the time, the Liberal Prime Minister John Howard, could only gain entrance that way. Um, the state opposition leader, Liberal Dennis Napstein, actually said in the media afterwards that he only got in by clambering over the barricades that the police had erected. So um, well, the sight of someone trying to do that three-metre-high barricade would have been quite comical, I think. Um, and so, yeah, like by the lunchtime, it was clear that we'd won. And I think actually they said in the news that night that only a third of conference delegates were actually able to get in. And so we'd effectively like shut down the first uh, day of it. Um, and it, yeah, like just the atmosphere then became a lot more kind of, um, I guess, like festive. There, were, there was music playing, um, you know, people, people really had a sense that we'd had this victory against people who um, were doing all these things around the world that, you know, destroying the environment, exploiting workers, um, and we'd had this victory. And, um, yeah, like the, the people who were in the forum, it's, it's you know, any day of the week usually they're the ones running the world and they don't expect to have anyone stand in their way. They don't they have politicians you know, sucking up to them, saying that they'll do anything they want to, you know, advance their interests, advance their profits. They don't expect that um, they're going to be stopped and literally blocked from doing what they want to do. And so feeling that uh, we had achieved that um, was was really wonderful and, um, yeah, just, just really inspiring. So, um, yeah, it just felt really good, I guess. And then, so then the next day, um, Vargas, the media comes out, obviously says it's just been this chaos. Well, what did they say? Probably um, outside agitators, you know, attacking the police, blah, blah, blah. How did things continue from then on? Did the blockade continue? Did, were people put off from coming or were they more determined? People were determined, but we knew that the response from the conference organisers, the ruling class in Australia, was they were outraged. And the footage on the news that night of um, they just weren't expecting that thousands of people would actually say, you're not legitimate, you're not going to meet, we're going to stop you. And this was just too much. So the Labor government, being servants of capital, were put under enormous pressure. And so we were expecting that the police were going to be more heavy-handed. Now, looking back 20 years ago, um, today, what the police came dressed up, they sort of had helmets and visors and sort of slick, black, fascist-looking type riot uniforms. But back then, that seemed like, oh, my God, they've really come in to, to um, use state violence. Um, and so... And that's what happened. You know, there was police violence. They they used um, horses and whatever force necessary. Hundreds of people got injured by the police. Um, and as they forced an entrance open to let delegates come through. And then again at night time, the police basically had a riot where they just went nuts um, using batons and, and, and whatnot. They, the, the Labor government, Steve Brax, to his internal shame, uh, just said, yeah, the police should just be able to do whatever they need to do. Um, and that was backed up all the way. Uh, so, yes, there were still thousands of people protesting on the second day. And, in fact, there was a union march on that second day. But the question of police violence and the state um, using um, that force to really show what kind of society we live on was in full display for everyone on the second day um, of the conference. Mm. Well, that reminds me of Dan Andrews' bloody support for the police attacking the IMARC blockades. The tradition of Labor leaders, even the ones who people think are more left-wing, um, absolutely backing the police 100%. Of the revolution and so, JP, th then you have this kind of, you know, news footage and oh, the media picking like the most 
sort of violent elements of what they think they can portray about this protest. Did the public support the blockade or did they think, you know, you should leave leave these nice capitalists alone? Well, yeah, I think I think politicians and the media kind of assumed that everyone would just agree that um, the S11 were, you know, a mindless, violent mob, you know, just bent on destruction. And, yeah, like Steve Brax, the Labor Premier of the time, said that we were un-Australian. John Howard said we were un-Australian. It was just a parade of politicians saying we we're un-Australian. Brax said we were fascists. He also said that we got everything we deserved from the police. And I think they assumed that the public would back them, that the scenes of violence and so on would convince the public that, you know, the protesters were in the wrong. But I, I don't know of any opinion polls that were done at the time. There probably were opinion polls, but I think they th these people really miscalculated. Um, and I think a, an early sign of that was on the 13th of September, which was the final day of the conference. And we didn't really have a blockade that day, but we had a kind of victory march um, which went through Melbourne CBD it was around 5,000 people, a sunny day, um, again, a very festive atmosphere. And in the city, you had all these office workers, people, you know, pedestrians walking along the streets um, and just stopping to cheer, just all stopping to cheer. And that night on the news, they had this reporter going around uh, talking to people who were in, stuck in their cars being held up by the protest. And I imagine she expected that they'd all be like, oh, these crazy S11 protesters, why don't they just get a job or whatever? But all these people were saying, oh, you know, I, I'm a bit um, inconvenienced by this, but, you know, I actually support what they're doing. So um, that was an early indication. And then I think in the days and weeks afterwards, it became more clear that the public sympathy was much more widespread than people might have thought. And just one indication of this, which I um, mentioned in the article, but I think it's worth, it, it's quite telling, which is that the Herald Sun... Um, the Age and other newspapers, they had all these cartoons which increasingly were just kind of ridicule, ridiculing Brax and other politicians. And Herald Sun cartoonist Mark Knight, who really isn't known for being a left-winger, he's the one who did those really racist cartoons um, with Serena Williams uh, last year, I think. Um, but he did a cartoon where he was making fun of the politicians saying that we're un-Australian and he had a picture of um, one of the miners rising up in the Eureka Rebellion um, with a soldier standing there with a bayonet saying you're being like about to stab him saying you're being un-Australian. So, yeah, like I think that actually the public support was quite widespread um, just for the basic fact that there were people standing up against what people could see was injustice and, you know, the problems that the world faced. Mm. And what impact did this have then, Vigus, like after the events, obviously, you know, these moments come and go and you think, okay, that was great. We did something really important, but then kind of what happens next? How did it shake things up? Well, a couple of things. This is in the context of the Olympic Games happening a couple of days later, which was meant to be, and in a pretty stable, pretty boring country like Australia, um, having such a momentous event just before the Olympic Games, I think makes it even more astonishing how successful it was. And we tried to keep this movement going. And there was a fuss, as James uh, Plester uh, spoke about. There was a backlash against Steve Brax. But I suppose one of the weaknesses at the time was we that left alternative um, to the Labor Party, to the trade union officials, particularly the left trade union officials, we were still not strong enough, I don't think, to be able to make lasting gains. Um, and unfortunately, exactly a year later, with the events of 9-11, um, of a lot of the politics around the anti-capitalist movement, which, played a, which really emphasised corporate greed and, and international institutions and really downplayed the role of the state, um, states in capitalism, meant that they were disoriented. So, unfortunately, I think the anti-capitalist movement had its moment and there was a number of people that became ongoing socialists and involved in politics to this day from the upheaval of September 11 and, 
and the events of organising it and and the event itself. But unfortunately, I don't think that it had this profound impact on Australian society, but it certainly did on the people there. And there's certainly many, many individuals who are still active today because of their involvement. Yeah, um, and that's interesting what you said about the politics of the um, anti-capitalist movement because uh, I remember, you know, there were all these sort of pronouncements about this is basically, you know, the end of the nation state. Like nation states don't really matter anymore. It's all just big corporations. They may be based somewhere like America or, or wherever in Europe or, um, you know, even in Australia, but like – it's all sort of irrelevant now, the the power of individual states. And I think that did really shape things after 9-11 and then you see this um, assertion of like US empire and all of that kind of stuff. So, JP, in t- just briefly, I guess, uh, what were some of the limitations like that of the anti-capitalist movement after this big kind of surge in through S-11? Yeah, well, definitely the inability to uh, analyse the world in terms of imperialism and nationalism was a big one, which contributed to effectively the movement collapse within a month of the 9-11 terrorist attacks happening. Um, Just as an aside, uh, quite interestingly, um, when the 9-11 attacks happened, it was exactly a year after the September 11, 2000 protests. And... um, we had a anniversary event um, at Trades Hall that night and then went home and saw the uh, Twin Towers being hit and, and so on. But um, gives you a sense of some of the impact of S11 on Australian political culture that some Australian journalists actually contacted S11 activists when the terror attacks happened to ask about any possible involvement <laughs> of S11 in those attacks, um, which obviously there was no connection. Um, and, yeah, like... The, the attacks were disastrous um, for the movement. Um, the question I've kind of asked myself is, well, if it wasn't for the 9-11 terrorist attacks, could the anti-capitalist movement have continued to go forward? And I think there's a big question mark over that. Um, one of the reasons I think was illustrated by what is probably like the high point of the anti-capitalist movement, which was the 300,000 strong blockade and protest um, targeting the G8 summit summit in Genoa in Italy uh, in July 2001. And this was obviously, you know, a really big turnout. Um, But one thing that was marked that summit was just the extreme level of violence meted out by the police. So they actually shot um, one of the anarchist protesters, just shot and killed him in the head. Um, And then the next day when hundreds of thousands of people came out to protest against that, yeah, the police just went on an absolute riot. It made like what happened in Melbourne look um, just very meek in comparison. They literally um, ran into the protest, just cracking heads, like aiming their batons at people's heads. And footage of that, you see people with blood streaming from their faces, like climbing trees to escape from the police. And this, for me, kind of highlighted a a limitation of the movement or a weakness of the movement, which is basically when a movement challenges state power to the extent that the anti-capitalist movement had started to do, the state can just ratchet up the level of violence and it becomes a question of, well, how do you respond to that? And you can't respond to that with more just blockades or more, um, you know, whatever the anarchists going around with Molotov cocktails because the state always has more force than we can muster on our side. And what you need is the power of the organised working class because you know, if it's just a matter of breaking through a blockade and, you know, dealing with anarchists and so on, the state can do that. But if it's a matter of dealing with striking workers, it's a whole another more difficult thing for them to deal with. And from the beginning, socialists had argued that it was very important for the movement to try and gain the involvement of organised workers. And that happened to a limited extent. There was a march of unionists down to the S11 blockade, but it was still on a very small scale. Um, But I think in order to go forward, those links needed to be made. But something that mitigated against that was the dominance within the movement of autonomous and anarchist politics, where it was just about kind of running around 
throwing Molotov cocktails, setting fire to things, which actually made it harder to broaden out the movement. So I think even if it wasn't for the 9-11 attacks in the US, it, it still would have faced challenges that I don't know if it could have been overcome in the short short term. And Vigus, is that your similar conclusions or lessons that you learned from being yeah. involved in, the, yeah, in this movement? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, the, the questions of, of the state, um, imperialism, um, were obviously, you know, very crucial and it was always overstated um, and a real obsession around the end of the nation state, um, the new dawn of, um, of multinationals. And also uh, the flip side to that was also a dismissive attitude towards the working class. Um, and the working class in industrialised countries like this one. Um, however, the positives from that time, I think, are enormously important. The taking a stand um, around saying, no, enough is enough, we're going to blockade you, you're not legitimate. Being confrontational, trying to, the debates within the movement were actually really important and it would be fantastic today for the student movement and, and society to be engulfed in questions of trying to work out, well, the world is fucked like we did 20 years ago. Let's try and organise around how we can build something that can, again, challenge things. And the Labor Party is also a really important question in this country. You need to build a socialist or, you know, alternative uh, to that can give an alternative to the Labor Party um, and the Greens. I think that's really, really crucial. Yeah, and I mean, 2020, it's sort of very, it's difficult now to kind of say, oh, well, how are things different now to what they were 20 years ago or t- 10 years ago or, you know, February this year because 2020 has been such a kind of, uh, yeah, hard to describe experience for all of us internationally and in Australia and in Melbourne where me and um, Pleston and Liam Ward are and Adelaide, in fact, where James Vigas is. But, like, how much, if you wanted to have some broad stroke conclusions out of this um, Plested, how much has changed on the left or in activism or politics or the kind of challenges that we face today? Well, in short, um, how much has changed? Uh, Not enough, really, Um, both in politics, in the world, and both on the level of the organised left. Unfortunately, the organised left is smaller now in Australia than it was um, back uh, when S11 happened. Social Alternative has grown, but the other groups that we're involved have declined for reasons that I really don't have time to go into. Um, And unfortunately, I think, yeah, as you alluded to, I think the situation in the world today is unfortunately worse than it was back in 2000. Um, global inequality is worse. I think now the latest figures from Oxfam, it's um, 26, the richest 26 individuals have as much wealth as the poorest half of the world's population combined. Environmental destruction is much worse. Back in 2000, you know, obviously there were environmental issues, but we ha- didn't have the kind, same kind of apocalyptic scenes that we've had in Australia with the bushfires and now in California. Um, and politics, I think, despite the fact that neoliberalism is really discredited now amongst most ordinary people, the agenda of privatisation and the free market and so on. But like within politics, I think, within mainstream politics, liberal, labour, um, the Greens as well, I'd say, it's kept drifting to the right. When S11 happened, the Greens were much more of a protest party and since then they've really kind of reshaped themselves to be a more respectable parliamentary party. Um, so I think we desperately need more of the kind of radical, disruptive protests that we saw at S11. Like with the world the way it is today, we don't have time to wait around for solutions that they're going to hand down from these summits um, as if they're interested in solutions anyway. Um, they've just shown themselves over the past two decades, despite you know all the stuff about climate change and so on, they're not interested in saving the planet. They're not interested in creating a livable, uh, decent life for people 
who who live on the planet. Um, they're just interested in the, the profits, um, big business profits. And I kind of want to end a bit on a uh, hopeful note, though, because yeah, one of the main slogans of the anti-capitalist movement was uh, globalized resistance. That's why it wasn't it was inaccurate to call it the anti-globalization movement, as I think the mainstream media tended to call it. Um, and in the past year, we've seen like resistance has actually been sweeping the world. You know, we've had revolts in far-flung places like Sudan, Chile, and, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, in, you know, Hong Kong, all around the world. And I think the signs are that we will see, again, moments of resistance uh, like we saw at S11, and if not greater. And I think that the challenge for us is to prepare ourselves for that um, and to be as organized as possible and politically conscious um you know, aware of our history and so on, so that when that does come, we can really make the most of it and really push things forward in the way that they need to be because we can't afford another 10, 20 years of uh, neoliberal capitalism the way it's going now. I really hope that I don't have to be sitting here doing another podcast in the 40-year anniversary of S11 because if things haven't changed, then, you know, God knows what the world's going to look like then. True, that was not a positive. <laughs> it went positive and then it came back to, oh my God, we're fucked. No, we're not fucked. Um, we've just got a lot of work to do. So yeah. um, thank you for uh, being on the podcast. And I should have said James Plessard is, of course, one of the contributing editors of Red Flag Newspaper, if you haven't yet subscribed. It's the best publication on the left in Australia. And you can follow the link in the notes to this episode and every episode and thanks to Vigus and enjoy your, the rest of your 30 degree day in Adelaide springtime. And Thank um, thanks, Ross. Thanks always to Liam Ward for producing the show. Uh, and we're both in the middle of a very hectic campaign at RMIT. So uh, if you're following what's happening in the NTU, um, you'll understand. Uh, this is Red Flag Radio. We've been talking about S11 20 years on. Um, it's been a fantastic discussion and I think they would have said the same thing then as I say at the end of every episode we have a world to win <laughs>